but good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, just glad you're here. This is a, a worship service. We worship Jesus and celebrate his work primarily uh, and what he did on his cross, death, and resurrection. And so uh, if you're new to this or just wondering what you're kind of witnessing or a part of or experiencing, it's uh, where we sing and where we observe the supper and where we give and where we pray and where we sit under the teaching of God's word also that we might see Jesus more clearly and enjoy him more fully. And so we sing songs because uh, these songs talk about what Christ has done and how he's rescued us, not through any works or merits or uh, obligations on our own part, but him pursuing us and giving us grace and mercy when we did not deserve it, uh, so that we might be raised to life in Christ. And so we do that by singing, because we're thrilled about that. Uh, we do that by uh, sitting under the, the preaching of God's word, because we believe that this is God's uh, perfect word. We are not perfect, and it reminds us and, and reads our thoughts and motives more than we really read the scriptures. And so it examines us well and shows us always how we need Jesus and not just our own selves. Um, and we also observe the supper each week. Somebody came from a background maybe that said, called it communion um, or whatever it might be. But we don't believe that this gifts righteousness. We don't believe that this saves. We don't believe that this increases your, your favor or standing with God anyway. It's just a, a gift, a meal that Jesus gave his church and said, hey, uh, be nourished by the saving benefits of Jesus Christ every time you partake of this. And so that's why we, we love taking the supper each week uh, to confess our sins, not because he's uh, unfaithful, because he's faithful to forgive and eager to forgive. Uh, we serve a God that, that longs to do that, the heart of God. And we also give uh, in the silver boxes on the back wall uh, because God was generous in giving us himself. And I always say, if you're not a regular attender, remember, please do not uh, feel any compulsion to give. We're interested and desiring that you know, love, serve, worship, follow Jesus Christ. Um, before we kind of dive into the text in Galatians 3, which is where it will be, a uh, quick announcement is that uh, new members class, the next one, we try to do these every couple months just so you guys can, uh, as the church has been really kind of uh, growing a little bit quicker than we've been attempting to keep up with. We want to keep people in the loop and help you learn kind of uh, who we are and what we believe and uh, kind of our, our government and how we're structured and or mission, vision, all those good things. So uh, if you're relatively new to Church at Bergen, uh, make sure you mark uh, that. The next class is November 4th from 1 to 3.30 uh, on a Sunday that follows the 11 o'clock service, and uh, it'll be a good opportunity for you to ask questions and uh, just kind of dial into more of who we are as a people of faith. So uh, know that. Let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to get into Galatians 3 a lot that I want to chat about today. So uh, Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your love is not predicated on any bit of what we do. Uh, thank you that even, even as we sit in these seats and as I stand up here, that there's absolutely nothing um, that I do that uh, helps dictate your affections towards me um, in the ways that you have justified us by your blood and by the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, so God, we come as a joyful people. We're here because we get to be here, not because we have to be here, not because we're trying to follow uh, rules and laws to somehow earn love from you, but because we're so loved, we love that we get to obey you. We love that we get to follow you. We love that we get to serve you. Uh, teach us, Father. We need help. Uh, we need your Holy Spirit to give us illumination, uh, understanding to the scriptures. Would you be kind to us in this way? And I know there's a, a myriad of thoughts, I'm sure, in this room with distractions and burdens and cares. Uh, I pray that you'd minister to hearts in exactly the ways that you need to. Help us to understand grace more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. I want to say as we're heading into Galatians 3, and one, I'm just thrilled that you guys are taking all the Bibles. We, we are like continually having to order more Bibles. So I always say there's Bibles on the back. If, if you need a Bible, don't have a Bible, take it. Um, I always say God will speak to you every time you open it and read it. Um, so there's no greater joy for me than to get just notes of encouragement from you. And I've, I just have to say in the last like, couple of weeks as we've been diving into Galatians in particular, uh, just the, the nature of you all writing and saying, man, I'm, I'm really starting to get this. I'm really starting to, to understand this whole concept of grace. I didn't realize how uh, meshed I was into background or tradition or what I uh, experienced or learned growing up. Uh, it's amazing how ingrained it is in my head uh, that we just uh, so desire to earn this thing that's been freely given us in Christ and, and how it really changes everything. And I just want to say that I, I'm so encouraged. I also want you to know that, that uh, really what God is doing is answering our prayers because um, if you were at corporate prayer about a week and a half ago, we had almost 100 of us in here just seeking the Lord, saying, God, would you move? Would you help us understand what we can't understand? Would you help uh, break apart just the, the fractured ways we think, believe, live? And would you uh, restore to us and kind of make us into the people that you want us to be? So I, I always say my hope is to always uh, unteach you and then reteach you. I always want to unteach the ways that maybe you've been poorly or badly taught, and then let's reform a foundation so we can stand firmly and walk in joy. So I uh, just want to say, man, God's at work. God is kind, and we're so encouraged as, as elders that, that God is allowing this truth to transform your heart, and he's not just allowing this truth to, to land staley on your mind, but actually move its way down. Uh, and to uh, actually transform it. It's amazing. And so uh, this is really what we've been seeing in the book of Galatians the last four weeks is, is Paul's insistent plea that you would not rest in your works, but the finished work of Jesus Christ. And by you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that empowers us to live, to worship, to live life of joy. Now here's Paul's burden. If I could sum it up over the last four weeks, if you've missed Galatians. Um, his insistent plea is that a life that simply dictates or a belief that simply dictates do this and don't do this um, will never produce any transformation. Um, and you will consistently be robbed of joy and vitality that God has gifted you in Christ to walk in. And so um, all other belief systems really say there's a, there's a problem with the human condition and we will have to absolve it. We will have to solve this thing. Now, now it's creative under the language of uh, self-discovery and self-esteem and self-empowerment and uh, it's the self. Well, the Bible's amazing because it says uh, actually uh, self is the problem, right? So, so if you keep looking at yourself, if you keep navel-gazing, you're not going to find freedom. You're not going to find uh, joy. You're not going to be able to pursue the glories of Christ the way that he designed you to. You need Christ to actually help yourself, and your eyes need to be on him and not on you if you're going to find life to the full. So this is a wonderful message. So Paul is so burdened that we do not believe this, just do this and don't do this, that is so uh, pervasive in Christianity, right? I mean, how many people grow up even in uh, the Christian church, it's just this ingrained thing of, I don't know, I come because I have to come, and I, I don't know, I read my Bible because I'm supposed to read my Bible, and I don't know, I go to growth group because that's just like the thing that you do in the middle of the week, to be holy and good and right, instead of this uh, unbelievable transformation that wells up in your soul to where you just long to live and serve and follow Christ. And that's only produced through grace. <laughs> it's not produced through anything else. And so Paul's plea is that, no, um, once your eyes see that Christ himself came and that God who was 
perfectly holy and uh, existed in infinite perfections and you could not be acceptable in his sight, sent to Christ who was perfect and sinless and lived the obedient life for you and justifies you, declares you righteous and makes you not seen as your rebellious self that you used to be who belittled his name and tried to thwart his glory but he now sees you as holy, spotless and blameless. He goes, that gospel that happens, it brings you in now as a son and daughter where now he delights in you. He actually likes you as his kids and he wants to grow you to the full. He goes, that's what leads to transformation. That's what leads to fullness of life and that's done by no act of your own. And so um, he's going to continue to show us we're at rest not because of our goodness, but his goodness. Uh, we're not at peace because of our abilities. We're at peace because of his infinite ability. Um, and so let's look at Galatians 3. I just want to warn you, man, he's going to get into rebuke. He, he has been kind of uh, loving and patient with these Galatians. Uh, these are three churches he helped plant, or a group of churches in Galatia. That's modern-day Turkey. And he, he's, been, he's been nice. He's been uh, really loving. No, this is all birthed out of a place of love. He's not trying to come at them because he doesn't like them. He's warning them just like you would warn your kid who's about to stick his hand on the fire. Hey, don't touch that. That's going to harm you. That's where this is, this is coming from. But he's going to just start rebuking them because he knows understanding and getting the God right is a matter of life and death. We say that all the time. Like if you, if you, if you shoot an arrow and you're one degree off, that's eh, no big deal, but you keep following that arrow 20 yards, you miss the target by a long shot. So you can say, oh, it's not a big deal if I'm just a degree off on the gospel. Well, I would argue it's everything because Paul would argue it's everything. And so look at what he says in chapter three, verse one. I love the way he starts out this, oh, foolish Galatians. That's not a compliment. That's not an encouragement. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That word uh, foolish means void of knowledge, like you're brain dead. He's going, why are you so brain dead? Like, have you been brainwashed? I love what he, what he says next. He says, who has bewitched you? Like, who, has someone caught, cast a spell on you? That means to be laser focused, stuck on what is false. Like, like you're just in a trance. You can't really get your eyes off of it. He's going, well, what's happened? Is false teachers came in, and, and somehow they've wooed you into this, this, this foolish doctrine where you're, you're so um, kind of captivated by this that you can't see the truth anymore? He goes, that's foolish. That's not wisdom. I mean, how in the world could this happen to you? He goes, has someone done this to you? He goes, man, you were trusting in Jesus, loving Jesus. Now you're trusting in yourself and following yourself. Uh, how did this happen? You left grace. You were saved by grace, and now you've tried to earn it by your own efforts. It doesn't really make sense. And notice when he says, no one, when he says, um, it was before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And no one in Galatia actually physically saw him crucified. What he's saying is, man, you guys got the message historically through the sacred literature, through testimony, through philosophy, through historicity, and you knew the apex of all that that held everything together was Christ crucified. You knew it was faith alone, by Christ alone, and grace alone. You knew that that was the apex. That was what was portrayed to you. That was what brought the whole message clear to you was grace. It goes on in verse 2, and he says, let me ask you only this. I love this. So Paul's getting into his questions, right? He's, he's dialoguing in this letter, and he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so brain dead? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I love this. He's just arguing from their own conversion experience. 
Well, like he, he's not, not, and here's what happens is, right? People come in, they say, okay, yeah, you, you need Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but you also need baptism, and you also need communion, and you also need the spiritual enlightenment. You also need, uh, I don't know, this. You also need speaking in tongues. You also need your systematic theology. You also need your traditions, your backgrounds, your denominations. You need Jesus, but you need all these other things. And what's amazing is Paul is reminding them, hold on a second. Um, you were a Christian. Were you a Christian before these guys came in and started teaching you this foolish stuff? Like, like, weren't you already indwelt by the Holy Spirit before people started telling you you needed these other things? Like, you were already a Christian. Like, and it was evidenced by the indisputable evidence of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us and gifts us and forgives us. Um, he, he's bringing them back to how they got saved and how they became Christians. And, and Paul is showing this. He's going, man, you were a Christian when you received the Holy Spirit. Man, that was before these false teachers ever showed up. So, so why are you trying to think that you can earn what he already gave you freely? Why, why do you believe you have to do these other things? See, another way of understanding what Paul is saying here is, um, does God do these things because you're being obedient? Or are you being obedient because of his great love towards you? Very different. Right? One's transactional and one is covenant. One is God has so loved me, God has so gripped me, God has so saved me, so I'm compelled to live, die to myself, and be on mission for Christ. Like, I mean, it, he, he totally flips the world upside down and shows them that Jesus himself says, if you love me, you'll, what? Obey me. So he's showing that you started out this. Does the obedience, does obedience bring God's blessing to your life? Or does, does God's kindness lead to your obedience? He's really helping them think biblically, right, about their understanding of conversion, how someone is saved. It's, it's loving relationship with God that, that creates a heart that loves to serve and follow him. And we've been saying this over and over and over, and he says, no, um, you're obedient because God has loved you and sent his spirit into you. Uh, that's why you're being obedient. You're not being obedient to try to earn what's been freely given. And don't miss verse 3. That's huge at the back end of that. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Uh, listen, you're going to keep hearing this over and over and over. You, you've already heard this if you've been attending this church for any length of time, but uh, you'll see the Scriptures say the same thing in a different way over and over and over. You do not start your Christian experience in the gospel and then move on to something else to continue the Christian life. Like, I can't, this was last week in living to God. How do we live to God? You want morality right away. And he says, no, you look at the son who gave himself and died for you and loved you. The, your eyes are fixed on the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Your eyes never leave there. As soon as your eyes leave Calvary, you're doomed in your growing in joy and your vitality of sanctification. I'm telling you, as soon as you get your eyes off of Christ and what he's done, you become a moralistic, deistic follower that has no heart and no soul and no life and only angst and only frustration and only bitterness and only anger and only exhaustion because the fuel moving you is you and not Christ. And so he's showing you over and over, hey, having begun by the Spirit, you think now you're going to perfect you being you? Do you think your flesh is going to somehow now kick in? <laughs> oh, cool, the Spirit got me on track, and now I get to kind of work my way in. That's what he's saying. That's what he's showing us here. He, he's saying this. Maybe some of us have, have mended our situation with God by somehow now believing that we've fixed it through our vitality and our morality. He goes, no, that was mended when Christ through his grace saved you and gifted you his spirit. You had no part in that. You didn't, you didn't have part in your salvation, man. It was all Christ, and he gets the glory for that, right? See, some of us, I know, I mean, is this not, does this not happen to us? Um, I mean, isn't it amazing that, 
that, that we think we have more power and authority than the Holy Spirit. You ever thought about that? Hold on a second. I mean, I know the Holy Spirit is God. Well, I don't know if you knew that. Fully God, not stepchild. He is God, right? Trinity, Gather, Fun, Holy Spirit. Gather, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equally God, distinct persons, right? Dwelling in perfect unity, all exercising their ways and rights in the ways that is most beautiful for the kingdom and glory of God. And the Holy Spirit of God is omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, beginning and end, alpha, omega. He is existent as God. And we think, man, maybe it can outperform the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I mean, I started out with him, but maybe I can now move on to my own works, and so doesn't this always creep in, though? I mean, does this happen to us, friends? You, you are well aware of your sin, well aware of your deep need for God, and you see Christ, and he saves you. And then what happens, man? You start kind of walking, right? You start reading the scriptures, start growing a doctrine, you start understanding truths, and all of a sudden a tail starts to come out of the back. You start wagging, you have swagger, right? That, that, that starts happening. What happens? All of a sudden you're like, I don't know that I really need the spirit anymore. Does that not happen to us? Is that not a pervasive challenge to us, that, that all of a sudden we think that now we can control this thing? That now somehow you got yourself to where you're at? It was really the grace of God that got you there. I mean, you got a pretty high view of yourself. I think you can outperform the Holy Spirit, right? And this is what Paul is saying. And all of a sudden we start taking credit for it. And isn't it hard just to like live by grace sometimes? I mean, sometimes like, man, I, it's, doing a couple good works seems a little noble, Right? Just do a couple, just in case the cross wasn't enough. Right? I mean, do, let me just do a couple. Let me just kind of increase this area of my life just in case. When he said it is finished, maybe he meant it's almost finished. Right? Isn't that what? Now, now imagine, I mean, what, what if God said, hey, uh, Jesus isn't enough. You, you got you to gotta work your way. You got to do some works. Tennis needs to be 85%. You need, you know, kind of do this merit and take communion this many times. And this is the tradition you have to grow up in. And what will we all be doing? We'll all be going, man, I don't know. I thought, I thought Jesus was enough. I thought, I thought he saved me. I thought he died for me. I thought, I thought I was fully forgiven. Isn't it funny? And he's saying, hey, he did it all. And now we're going, well, I don't know, man. I don't know if he did it all. I don't know. I I might need to do some of these works to kind of make up for it. And this is why he says this in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? This is really profound, just quickly. He's showing you that, that if, if you veer from the true gospel, that suffering and persecution actually loses true meaning. Um, so what he's revealing here is in Acts 13, Paul was persecuted because of the work that he did in Galatia. Um, you can be sure if he was persecuted holding to a true gospel, everybody that followed him to plant churches and minister behind him, if they're holding the true gospel, they'll be persecuted and endure suffering as well. And Paul's argument here is it's so important because if you're following the true gospel, suffering and persecution have meaning. If not, they don't have any meaning which is why Jesus, right, when Jesus gets up and Jesus starts teaching, he teaches us in a way that we were a little bit surprised by. We think suffering and persecution is something that needs to be solved, right? I mean, just solve it, man. You know, we don't want to look at super spiritual or weird or, I don't know, hyper-Christian or, man, let's not be too on fire because then people might think we're really weird and we'll lose our evangelistic opportunity instead of going, man, if, you're, if your God is really that awesome, why are you so apathetic about him? Like, what? Really, you're losing your, your missional posture. And what's amazing here is he's, he's showing us here in this idea that Jesus says, no, no, when you're persecuted and, and when you suffer, it's not something that you want to be solved. You count it as blessing because when the shores of glory hit, you'll have a vantage point to say it was worth it. 
Man, it was worth it. I mean, every, every bit of mocking, every neighbor that gave me a funny look, every person at work who was a little bit creeped out by me, man, I'd rather have allegiance to Christ and follow him fully and then walk in that uncomfortability with courage by the Spirit of God, praying he'd do something. Why? Because in glory, no one's regretting the ways they followed him. I always say this, man. Listen, we're all standing before Christ. None of us, none of us are gonna are gonna look at him and be like, man, you know, I wish I was a little bit more at ease, man. I, Pastor Mike, man, I, I wish that I had really followed him less. I wish I had really been a little bit less about his glory and the centrality of this king. I, I really wish I had kind of like pushed it off to the side. No one's saying that. And no one's saying that. No one regrets following him hard. No one regrets putting their hand to the plow and not looking back. No one regrets in glory the suffering that they walk through, right? We have the kiss of Christ. Um, powerful thing he's getting at. So Paul says, if you abandon the true gospel, then even your suffering's in vain. It has no meaning. Why are you even going through these trials and tribulations? And then he says in verse 5, and he won't stop. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul will not stop with grace. <laughs> he won't stop. I mean, every couple verses, he just comes back to it. You're going to see the, this same language. He's going, do you think God only gives the Holy Spirit and works miracles and wonders of, over those who have earned it? Do you think it's even about that? Like, it's, it's solely about God's will, and God will do what he wants, and God's authority, and, and we're the people that get to partake in this thing, but he's clearly showing this amazing reality of, of man, to, for you to think that it's only people who have earned this thing that God will work through, you're nuts. Man, he, he bought you when you were a slave to sin. He made you alive when you were dead in your trespasses. He, he saved you and rescued you as a loved son and daughter when you were rebelling against him gladly in your heart. He's showing us that that would be crazy. That's why one of the best arguments we're saved by grace is just look at the perspective of the true Christian. Because everyone says, oh man, like they're just hypocrites and we say all these weird things and we think that, you know, um, they just think that they're better than we are. And um, no, we don't think we're any better than you are at all. The difference is that, that God has loved us when we weren't lovely. <laughs> and he put his spirit in us and made us his kids. And so we want your eyes to be on him. Um, I mean, the true Christian sentiment and posture is only a testimony to that. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't because, like, we did all these great things that he starts doing something through us. It was, man, God just decided to do something through us, and we didn't even want him. How, how crazy is grace, right? How crazy is that message of, of the gospel and the cross? And then I love it. Paul is just so fired up with his arguments, he just takes him to Scripture. Paul basically is going to go, anyone have a Bible? I love that. Listen, if you ever get in an argument, man, that's a good person to follow, right? Not just what I think, not my just opinions. They go, hey, anybody got one of these? Let's open it up and just look at what the Bible says. So he goes and he takes him to Abraham. Abraham, Genesis Abraham, Old Testament Abraham. And, and this is what he says in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture for seeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's non-Jews, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
So, so Paul says, okay, listen, man, I lay before you the, the evidence of, of the Holy Spirit in your life and how you came to faith by, by grace alone and faith alone. Let me, let me just, let's, let's pull out Abraham, right? And he knew there was great respect for Abraham. Everyone knew Father Abraham. Had many sons. You guys ever grew up singing that? Okay, I did. If you were a church person, you did. So although pagans everywhere else. So, so you grew up, right? Father Abraham, and he was just known as this esteemed man who was responsible for the, the Jewish nation being happening. And God saying, through your nation, all will be blessed. The Messiah will come. He will bring salvation. And, and so he knew Abraham was someone who they, they tracked with. But here's the argument. He knew the false teachers were coming in saying, Abraham right? Um, he was a Jew. He was circumcised, followed Jewish customs, and he followed the law. So to be a true Christian, you need Jesus plus being a Jew, plus following Jewish tradition, plus being circumcised, plus following the law. Well, here's where it's really important that you know your scriptures. Because um, you can say, man, well, that's pretty convincing. Um, but if you go back and look at, was Abraham a Jew? No, he was just this average Joe, who was named Abram, and God changed his name to Abraham and said, through your nation will come the Jewish family. Well, was Jewish, was, was, so, so when did his faith come before that? He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, well, I mean, circumcision, I mean, that's got to be a part of this. That's, that's this, the Judaizers' whole kind of thing is you got to be circumcised to add, add that to Jesus. And he's going, well, circumcision, if you read the scriptures, happened 14 years after he believed God and his faith in the promise God would send was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, well, what about the law? I mean, the law then, right? Like, I mean, at least he, he followed the law, and then he knew that. No, you, you know, and this is wild. Next week, you're going to learn this. Law wasn't given until 430 years after Abram believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. Um, so God gave him the solution before he even gave him the commands to obey. Profound. And so here's basically what he's getting at. He's basically saying, Abraham didn't have to have circumcision and then faith. He had faith before circumcision. Uh, Abraham didn't have to be ethnically a Jew. He had faith before the Jewish nation of Israel. Uh, he didn't have to abide to the law to be saved. That came 430 years after his faith. So the issue's not, the nation of Israel is not a bad thing. The law is not a bad thing. Circumcision is not a bad thing, even though it's painful. Those aren't bad things, right? Um, what's important is that faith precedes all those things. Great. He goes, be like Abraham. You want to be like Father Abraham who had many sons? You want to believe and be credited righteousness? Then believe in the promise of God. We believe back at Christ. He believed to the future that Christ would come. You read John 8. Jesus himself will say, Abraham was delighted to see this day. Amazing. To see that my day would come in my coming. <coughs> Sorry. Wow, that was unexpected. Sorry, podcast listeners. Um, but make sure you see this, that he had faith in the one who was to come, and his faith was given salvation by God. Now, don't, don't miss the word credited, counted, depending on your translation. Counted as righteous, credited as righteous. It's, it's, to, it's to put into someone's account. Man, that's like for no reason. You go to your bank account, you know, this afternoon, and, and I walked up, I put, you know, $20,000 in that sucker, and, and you go up to it, and you're, you get your receipt just because you're looking at your account, trying to see what's in it, and it has $20,000? You're going, what? I mean, I mean what? Why do I have that? Why, why? No reason. Just credited it to your account. Just count. Jesus takes his infinite righteousness and credits it to our account. It's insane. He declares us righteous because he takes the righteousness of his son 
And he credits us with that. It's the great exchange that happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. So he says, this is how it's always been done. That's Paul's point. That's Paul's argument. Even with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited righteousness. This is how it's always happened, always been forgiven of your sins. You, you can't save yourself. Your parents can't save you. Your heritage can't save you. Your church attendance can't save you. Your Christian school can't save you. Your spouse can't save you. Christ and Christ alone can save you, right? You do not live vicariously through someone else's faith. Paul is adamantly undermining and dismantling the belief, the false belief, that only ethnic Jews could be saved. He's, he's revealing that it's now gone to the Gentile people, and these Judaizers who are coming in are trying to teach you a false, foolish gospel. This is why I'm constantly calling you to put your eyes on Christ. If you live your whole life about how you measure up or don't measure up or how you failed or how you've done well, you will always lack joy and vitality in growing in your sanctification. You need to look at Christ who measures you up fully because he credits you righteousness, so now you're actually free to obey the commands of God in joy because they don't lead to a burdensome life. They're actually very good things, which is why he's gonna show us this in this next text, that your freedom is not in you, your freedom is in him. That's why get your eyes off of you and get your eyes onto him. Every single time you fail, you wander, you blaspheme, you belittle, every single moment that you stumble and fall, get your eyes on him. Horse blinders, so you're undistracted. Look at, look at verse 10, this is the, the apex. He really goes at them here. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul's going, okay, if you don't like the evidence of the Holy Spirit, presence in your life and empowerment in your life, if you don't like that and you don't like looking at Abraham who believed God and his faith was credited as righteousness and him believing the promises of what God would send and how God would work and how he would save through Christ, if you don't like all that, listen, um, if you're going to try to earn this thing by your works, you're actually doing the opposite. You're putting yourself under a curse. Like, like if you try to work this thing in your own vigor and vitality and morality, you're actually doing the opposite of trying to find freedom. You're going to find further bondage. And that's the way the law has always worked, right? I mean, you, you break a law, there's punishment, right? There's a curse. Right? But it's never worked. Like, I know, officer, I was going 120 miles an hour in a 25. I know. But I haven't sped for 40 years. He's not going to go, oh, okay. No, you're like on deck for murder, Attempted Murray going 120 and a 25? He doesn't care that you have a 40-year track record of cleanliness. I promise, man, I've never stolen $1,000 before. I mean, in 10, 10 years, never stolen it. I mean, well, you stole $1,000. I mean, that, right, the, you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. That's how the law's always worked. He's saying, but, but, but listen very, very carefully here. Um, he's not saying anywhere that you should not pursue the commands of God, and they are not good things for you. He says, all who rely, all who rely on these things to save you. If you're relying on the commands of God and relying on your ability to follow the law and your ability to be a good steward and a good person and moral and upstanding citizen and humanitarian and on the front lines of social justice, if you're relying on those things alone, he says, man, you're under a curse. Because no one's righteous enough. And this is why the law will teach that, right? That we don't measure up. 
See, the moral law in the Old Testament reveals we don't measure up, and, and, and it also reveals, man, this is how God's wired us to live, so you're actually robbing yourself of joy. So the commands of God aren't bad. The commands of God aren't sinful. I mean, the commands, if you're unfamiliar with them, I mean, don't kill anybody. That's a good command. You follow that one, you'll probably do pretty well in life, right? Um, don't, don't covet. Right? Honor your, your, your parents. Um, but what's amazing is Jesus moves into the New Testament. He takes it from external to internal. He says, hold on a second. Some of you guys are going to try to justify this thing. So he says, yeah, um, murder is the same as just anger in your heart. Yeah, I know external adultery, but also internal lust towards a woman, man. Yeah, I know, coveting externally, but you have greed in there. It's the same. You're a lawbreaker. So all of a sudden, you find yourself going, broke it, broke it, broke it. God is perfectly holy. I can't be acceptable in his sight. Is the law the issue? No. Who's the issue? Us. <laughs> we like to change the law, tweak the law, justify the law so we can find like loopholes. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem's with you and me. Like, you have to realize that. Like, like the, the law's not the issue. The human heart's condition is the issue. And Paul's revealing this. He's laying this before them. He's saying, man, no one can abide by all these things and do them. That's his point. It's rhetorical. You're under a curse if you try to do this. Verse 11, he says this. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. I love this. Okay, for those of us in this room, Paul's talking to us. He goes, okay, if you think you're going to somehow work your way to heaven and, and re reconcile this relationship with God by all that you do and all your merits and all of your works and all of your moralism, if you think you're going to do that, you're going to be the first person in human history who's ever pulled it off. No one in human history has pulled it off. So you think you're going to be the first one to somehow figure out how to be right before God through your own vitality? He goes, man, no, no one's ever done that. No one's ever, ever made that. He goes, and he goes, you're saying you're going to be the first. So all who rely on it are going to be under the same curse of everyone else who fell into this pride that said, I don't need grace. I can pull it off. I don't need Christ. I can somehow, I don't know, get to this, this chasm and find my way across to God and find myself justified through some other means. He goes, you're, you're just as crazy. You're going to be under the same curse everyone else is under. And the reason this is important is because the false teachers were all saying, oh, the law is good. They're manipulating it. The law is good. The law is good, so to be acceptable to God, you've got to follow the law, right? That's the essence of legalism. Here are rules. Follow them. God's happy. He smiles, right? It's not the gospel. It's not the scriptures. It's, uh, I broke all the laws. God smiles at me in Christ, rescues me in, and keeps delighting and smiling at me, and now I just want to follow these laws. Oh, oh man. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of the message of Christ, that's what Paul's trying to flip on its head. That's what Paul's trying to show us here. And the question is always, okay, if the problem is us and the rules are good, do we move toward God or does God move towards us? That's the question, right? You don't move towards him. That's every other belief system. We need a movement. We need discipline. We need laws. We need rules. We need something to move us towards God. God says, no, no, no. I'm coming towards you. Uh, that's the story of the scriptures. Christ incarnates, Christ descends, Christ lives, Christ dies, Christ rises, Christ takes wrath, Christ imputes righteousness, Christ atones for sin, Christ pays the debt, Christ gifts the spirit. <laughs> God comes to us. I love this. I love how when every other 
Faith says we need more, more, ta- more morality or more discipline or more law. The Bible says we need God. We need him. We need him to come. We need him to save. And God has done that in Christ. And he says this in verse 13. I love this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. You see that word there that Christ has redeemed us? Do you know what redeemed means? The problem is, I think, is that we, if you get in Webster's Dictionary, you're going to see the true definition of redeemed, uh, which means that you gain back something by pay- paying someone a price, by paying someone something to earn it back. Here's the problem. If you're not, if you're not careful, that's not fully biblical in this sense. Because I want you to understand something. Christ doesn't pay anybody. Like, he doesn't pay off Satan and barter with him. Hey, if I could have Mike read on the kingdom, let me offer you something. He doesn't do that, right? This term of redemption almost always refers back to the Exodus when God says, hey, uh, let my people go. I'm going to be gracious, going to be merciful. Ain't going to twist your arm. Okay, you're not. Here come plagues. Okay, you're not. Well, I'm just going to take them. So he takes them out. The whole point was, though, is to deliver them from their false god. They're brutalizing false god Pharaoh, which was an imagery of all the false gods we worship to where we worship the true God. And when the Spirit enters our souls, we're free and liberated to worship. That's redemption. So here's what I want you to understand. Christ redeems us. When it says Christ redeems us, he's not bartering with darkness. Like he's not up there going, hey guys, can we work out this deal? Can we find a way to get more Christians into the kingdom? Christ has crushed Satan, right? Christ went to Calvary. Christ paid your debt. Christ gives you righteousness. Christ has done it. He is not bartering or bargaining or striking deals with anyone. And if you're not careful, this theology will creep in where all of a sudden God's not all powerful, omniscient, all good, all knowing, all sovereign. He's kind of a weak, theistic, weird God who kind of like deals with other deities and powers and somehow twists their arm to grab people into the kingdom. Man, God went to Calvary on his own. When the the forces of evil were saying, don't do this, we can't stop him, we can't thwart him, all we can do is pester him. So when you read God redeems you, man, read in that text, God in Christ has redeemed you, he has crushed Satan, he has killed our sin, he has conquered death, he's taking you into freedom so that you might be his children and worshipers of God. He did it with zero effort important to know. You want to know why? Because in this is where you get the theology of substitution, which is actually, you know, very commonly attacked. Oh, Jesus didn't die, didn't die in our place. He just died as our example. He showed me how to be, you know, kind of humble and how to face a rugged cross and how to bleed well and how to face adversity and trial, and it's under this weird verbiage. Now, when it says Christ redeemed you, he's actually talking about substitution, that Christ died for your sin in your place. That's why I say that a lot. You understand that substitution is necessary. He exchanged places. The 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He did not sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's that amazing transaction. On the cross, it's amazing. He took Mike Reed's old sinful, blasphemous, belittling his glory self, put it on the cross, and then he actually traded places with me, and he gives me the spotless life of Christ on my behalf. He credits that to me so I can now walk in joy, walk in freedom, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
That's what he's revealing here. And this is why one of the reasons I know this is from God. I mean, guys, would, would man write something where it just elevates God, just diminishes you and me? No. That's every other false system. Every other false system elevates you and me and diminishes God. We're the achievers. We're ultimately the hero. We kind of work our way, and through our merits and works and vitality, we acclaim a heaven. And the scriptures teach, no, it's God and then us. He ends with verse 14. And this is such an important verse, such an important verse. Usually we'll stop at 13, right? Because that's the coffee mug, that's the scripture on the wall. If you have it, great, beautiful. I won't mock you if I come to your house. But um, 14 is important. 14 is beautiful because it wraps this whole thing up and we're usually tempted to stop here. Look what he says in verse 14. Because some of us are going, I know I was saved by grace through faith, but I continue to stumble in my sin, so I think I do need to clean myself up through my own efforts, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you still think that. I think I do need to be ultimately saved through my merits and morality. Look what he says. No, it's all Christ. It's all Christ. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He won't let you forget it. The spirit even, remember, it's through faith. It's not through your works. That's how you were justified. We're not saved by Jesus to then start trusting in ourselves. We must trust Jesus Christ in this finished work. And he gives us the spirit to convict us of sin, illuminate the scriptures, instruct us, guide us, walk with us, empower us, gift us. The Holy Spirit does never leaves us. We're not left as orphans, Jesus prayed in John 14, but the Holy Helper will come to walk with you and care for you. Grace redeems us so that we can be free. You're free now to be forgiven of sin. You're free from the delusions of believing that your good works actually achieve merit before God. Uh, you're freed from believing that, that even church itself is your Savior and that you can vicariously live through other people as functional gods. You're free now to worship God, and you're delivered from, like the Exodus, the false gods and idols that rule your life. So this is why Galatians is pervasively and consistently and emphatically saying, when you are at the center, life will never make sense. When God is at the center, that is when life will begin to make sense. So, so where are you at the center? Whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in holiness, whether it's in work, whether it's with your children, whether it's in your singleness, where are you at the center? Were you trying to be God? Were you trying to earn and, and, and work out what God has already worked out and wants to empower you in so that his name might be glorified? So I just want to give you two things to remember as we close. One is, man, when you read your Bible, please pay attention to it. You're going to see a consistent story of everyone's a mess, Jesus stands out. Everyone's a mess, Jesus stands out. People try to work. People have good tracks of obedience for like a day or two or a week or a month, and then Jesus stands out because they fall on their, fla fall on their face. You read about Abraham, believed God, credited righteousness, amazing. Yeah, he tried to sell his wife to the king, and he could just go sleep with him. Ain't a good husband. Uh, not killing it with Ephesians 5 in that moment. And, and Christ stands out. There's a deliverer coming. There's a promised one coming. David, man after God's own heart, committed adultery, had the husband killed off in battle. I mean, it just you can just keep going down the list. I mean, then you look at Jesus' line, prostitutes and half-breeds and all to bring about this amazing new generation, new line of salvation in Christ. Why? Because Christ stands out. It's all the story of the Scriptures. 
We're all screwed up. Christ is perfect. We're all imperfect. He's awesome. He's holy. We can't live the life right. He lives the life for us. We can't pay our debt off. He pays it for us. We have no righteousness of our own that could possibly fulfill the law perfectly. He gives you his righteousness so that you don't have to. And then you get to live. And that's why the second part I want to say is, do you understand that if you've been saved by grace, you are free to now walk in obedience to God's commands? Like you're free to walk now. Like you're not free to earn them or or follow them because you believe it's achieving something. You're free now to do it because that's what your heart says. That's why David says, the law no longer terrifies when I'm in Christ. It tastes sweet like honey. It does terrify before Christ. You become a Christian. Why would I want to follow, have no other gods before me? Why would I want another God? I mean, this God saved me through a sacrifice of himself, right, for myself. Well, you don't, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's not talking about cussing. It's talking about how can you be trite about the one who saved you and gave himself for you? How, how could I do that? Do this, don't do this. Man, how could I possibly do this to further defame the name of God and not live for the one who so freely bought me in by this grace? The law tastes sweet to you. I mean, true Christians saved by grace love following God's commands. They love holiness. They love purity. They love putting their sin to death through the power of the Spirit. Not because they have to, but they get to. So ask God for help. Father, you're a good, saving God. There's, there's so much in grace that we're trying to uncover, trying to understand, trying to more form in ourselves. Thank you for reminding us that we can't even do that. Thank you that your Holy Spirit's able. God, I pray that whatever truth uh, you want to minister to hearts right now in this room, that you would do that, that you would continue to free men and women and children uh, from the bondage of, of worshiping a false God, not worshiping you as the true God. And may we be careful that we don't miss the subtle false gods that we worship of comfort and ease and approval of people and of greed and attention and uh, the gods of success, um, the gods of material. Um, God, would you continue to free us so we are the freest men and women to walk with you and follow you and obey you. Oh, thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for becoming our curse. Thank you for substitution, for taking our place for our sin. Thank you that's how it had to happen, to reconcile sinful men and women. God, help us as a people um, not to fall prey to being saved through the Spirit by faith, to then believe that we can somehow continue this thing in our own strength. God, empower us by your grace. Keep our eyes on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the remainder of our days. Uh, help us never stop saying that. God, for those who are struggling, those who are uh, discouraged, might they lift their eyes to Christ and see him. That's what you want them to see. Get their eyes off of them and onto you. And Father, those who believe in, in self-righteousness, they're somehow achieving what's already freely been given. Would you humble them by your grace? Would you bring them to a place of sweet rest where they can actually enjoy living as a son and daughter of you, redeemed by you, purchased by you becoming what we could not be, and also by you becoming what we were. Father, thank you that we'll observe the table. Nourish us, nourish us through the truths that you broke your body and shed your blood so we might be made righteous. And then may we sing with full hearts in Jesus' name, amen.